Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're back in our study of uh, the Beatitudes. We're calling our, this series The Good Life, a look at the good life according to Jesus. And uh, today we're looking at, um, one, we're getting now the, near the end of the Beatitudes, but one of the ones that I think is most appropriate for our time and space uh, that we live in, in this culture that we live in. It's uh, good to be back as well. Um, from vacation and be with you guys. I want to thank everyone for the encouragement and prayers of the last few weeks as Elizabeth will begin the battle of, uh, with breast cancer in a week and a half with her first chemo. And so we do thank you guys for your encouragement and God's been really good to us in these last few weeks with the rest and preparation. We're doing well at the moment. And uh, again, God has been unexpectedly good in the midst of that. So uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that another time, but uh, let's get into the story of the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus is laying out here a pretty extraordinary view of life, very countercultural, and this whole idea of pursuing the good life that we all want, wherever we are spiritually, Jesus is offering us something that's definitely unique. He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says crazy things like, blessed are those who mourn, uh, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, and this whole idea of being even pure in heart, like, uh, like Britton talked about last week, is just mind-blowing for us when we think of what the good life really is. Jesus doesn't disappoint today. He tells us something about how we can belong to God in real relationships with people when we come to blessed are the peacemakers. So, believing God has spoken, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Remember, this is the context, seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And finally for today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. May God bless the reading of the word, or this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's dive in now, okay? Today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, conflict. That's right. This is a subject that most, if not all of us, are pretty uncomfortable with. But in reality, it's something that we all face on some level every day in our lives. I mean, all you have to do is go on the internet, look at internet news, or uh, look at uh, Twitter or Facebook, and you'll find the war of words going on on the internet on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but I get tense listening to or looking to things online, especially at the news. Then there are our politicians. Uh, Through media and other means, we hear every day about the arguments going on in the political realm. There's a place for that, certainly, in our time and place. But we really hear more than we want to hear what's going on between leaders and even between world leaders. It's stressful. It's stressful when our leaders fight. Then we go to work. And things like power plays and personality conflicts happen in our midst. People don't get what they want at work, and as a result, some lash out. Some make work difficult for us. 
Add to that our marriage, our families, uh, extended families, family get-togethers. Even the holidays that are coming up in months ahead are supposed to be happy times for most of us, but typically we end up holding our breath not knowing how such and such family member is going to handle it given long-standing issues or wounds. Dare I say it, we sometimes go to church and run into conflict as well. And we all have this idea sometimes as Christians that church won't be a place of conflict, but what do you know? We are human beings, even sinners, who bump into each other when we're together in church, and conflict happens when we're disappointed, even in a place like this. And lest we forget, when it comes to conflict, there is always us. Always us. We sometimes create conflict by saying and doing the dumbest things uh, and are off left wondering, what have I done? How do I clean up this mess? In the face of such tension, we wonder, how in the world can you have the good life when conflict keeps interrupting our lives? How is that going to happen? Well, you know what's interesting? is Jesus himself lived this, in this same kind of trouble and this same kind of conflict in his own day. He lived in a tense environment with the Romans occupying Jewish territory. Jesus found himself in conflicts with the religious authorities of the time, uh, going back and forth in a tete-a-tete of what it means to know God and even be saved. And then Jesus got into it with his own disciples who had their own agendas Peter, who tried to control Jesus in Matthew 16, and the disciples who regularly just didn't get who he was. And amidst this ethos, Jesus says this crazy thing, this crazy, but I would dare say the most sane thing you imaginable in the face of conflict and relationships, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, Jesus is saying you can have the good life by being a peacemaker, now, our question today around this will be how. How can you have a good life in relationships in a world of conflict and even strife? Even in relationships that we have, we're like, that relationship just seems so broken. I, I don't know what to do. What does the good life look like when we find ourselves at odds with someone? I have given you a detailed outline in your bulletin that you can look at. And I've given you for a reason. We need this stuff in our time. We need this stuff in our time. Jesus is calling us to a different way of doing life and relationships with each other when inevitable conflict comes our way. So let's start by looking at God's unexpected way to good relationships and the good life. Now here's what I want you to do before I get started. I want everybody in here to have in your mind one thing, or rather one person. I want you to think of somebody that you are at odds with, maybe on a small scale, maybe on a big scale, maybe it's such a broken relationship you haven't talked in years. Who is that person that's in your mind right now? Think about it. Got it? Keep them in mind while we're talking about what Jesus calls us to in this peacemaking life and the good life. Jesus starts our beatitude with this language of the blessed. And remember what blessed means. It means thriving, flourishing is the life that one has when they live this way. 
And Jesus is telling us right off the bat that in the midst of the thing that we most hate more often than not, conflict with people, we can actually have a thriving life. And how do we have that life? Well, we make peace, peacemaking. And when I say peacemaking, most of us here have something jump into our heads of what that means and how we handle problems and conflict and relationships. I would suggest that with some exceptions, perhaps every one of you, including me, should take into this into account probably what you're thinking is all wrong. Probably what you're thinking is all wrong about how to handle conflict. And I know because I've had to figure this stuff out the hard way. I was not trained well on how to handle conflict in life. And I've had to figure it out the hard way through the years, and I'm still figuring it out the hard way as a Christian and as a pastor. Most of us here, likewise, have also been trained poorly. And so what we need is a biblical understanding of peacemaking to have this thriving life even in the midst of conflict. So Ken Sandy wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and he comes up with some very, really helpful categories to understand this. I recommend this book to you, even for some of our small groups and Bible studies in the future. And he basically says that there are other ways that are attempts at making peace or not that aren't healthy. And when we face conflict, what he basically says is there are three non-constructive ways to handle that conflict. And the first is this. It's peace faking, peace faking. This is my personal favorite, just so you know. My way of handling conflict as my home base. Peace faking is this, it's being nice. It's being nice. It's being easygoing, even silent. And it typically says, oh, there's no problem. Or goes to denial with even, I'm not hurt when maybe you have been hurt and you're bleeding all over the place emotionally, relationally, and you know you can't let it go. The next unbiblical form of handling conflict is peace-breaking. Peace-breaking. Peace-breaking goes like this. You hurt me, I'll take you out. You hurt me, I'm going to take you down with words or with what other means I can. Peacemaking uses power to crush the one who hurt them. Peace-breaking looks like irrational anger, bitterness, sarcasm, even the cold shoulder. Peace-breaking in its sophisticated forms would look like taking someone to court because you don't want to do the hard work behind the scenes before court. The worst forms are when nations are so mad at each other that they go to war. That's peace-breaking as well. It's not to say there isn't a place for those, but it is to say that is a way that we often relate to people in conflict. Last and false form of handling conflict as a Christian is peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is appeasement that says, hey, why doesn't everybody just get along here? The peacekeeper places themselves in a place where they are above the fray, where they're actually looking in on two people who are in conflict, say, hey, I understand what's going on. You guys just get along, all right? When in point of fact, very often the peacekeeper is actually contributing to the problem by not really getting to the heart of the matter of what needs to be dealt with. The peacekeeper, if you know your history, shows up in the name of Neville Chamberlain. If you know World War II history, 
Neville Chamberlain was the one who came up with the doctrine of appeasement for England uh, towards uh, uh, Hitler, who was clearly taking over Europe, and that didn't work too well for a time. Here is the key to peacemaking. You need to know yourself. Where's home for you? Are you a peace faker, a peace breaker, a peace keeper? Where do you typically position yourself in life when you're in a conflict? You need to know yourself and where you go in your flesh before God. So, don't go the way of peace faking. Don't go the way of peace breaking or peace keeping. We want to do peace making. Well, that begs the question then. What is peace making? Well, here's a working definition. We can come up with different angles, but... Peacemaking is a proactive, intentional effort to reconcile with someone with Christ and his gospel in the four. You got to know that peace, real peacemaking is usually costly. It's costly to you more often than not. Think of it this way. When someone hurts you, they owe you a debt. Reconciliation occurs when the debt is paid. The hard part is, rarely can someone pay up the full debt when they hurt you. So in some measure, you have, to bury the, you have to bear the burden of some of what you go through. You have to help take on the debt in what we'll call forgiveness. I'll give you an analogy with my son. A few years ago, he was in a major automobile accident where he lost control to curve, wet road, Car flipped multiple times, hit another car with a woman in it. It was a really nasty um, accident. He came out perfectly fine. She ended up being okay as well. And he was terribly sorry about this, but the car was lost. I mean, it was, it was trashed. Um, and her car was trashed as well. And so we end up bearing the burden financially of paying for that whole situation there was no way he could pay off his financial debt that came out of that towards us. Peacemaking is where you bear some of the debt through forgiveness. And forgiveness is always costly. And I would suggest to you that's why we tend to avoid it. But don't miss the gospel. The story of the gospel really comes in the fact that God is a God of forgiveness and a God of peace. Think about the whole outline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restor, uh, re reconciliation, re uh, restoration, if you will. Starting at creation, God created you and me to be in a relationship with him, like a harmonious, give-and-take love relationship with him. However, Man fell by hurting God and turning away in disobedience. We offended God, every man from Adam on, and this created a situation of alienation, of broken relationship between God and man, so that a debt was owed to God for our sin to God. The only way that reconciliation could take place to pay the entire debt was that God would send his son Jesus into our world to die on a cross, to bleed and take the penalty that you and I actually owe God and take the penalty on himself. The cross is where we are reconciled with God. 
And Jesus reconciles us as the one true mediator between God and men. And not only that, he reconciles people to each other, people like us. Here's how that applies now. When you find yourself in conflict with someone, the number one thing you need to do, the number one issue to get you moving towards making peace is this, is that you have peace with God yourself. You have to come to grips with your own need for peace with God and receive his forgiveness through the work of Christ by faith. Real and lasting peace does not happen unless God gets a hold of you and me first. So this is the real starting point for peacemaking, to recognize our need to be at peace with God first and seek out and reconcile with him in any real way by seeking Jesus in faith. So that brings up the question, why do we even have conflict that we have to be talking about this today? What is at the heart of all conflict with God and with others? Well, I'm going to give you a general and a specific answer. <laughs> the problem that causes a broken relationships, according to Christianity, is one simple thing, sin. Sin is what causes broken relationships. But specifically, I would submit to you, probably the chief sin is pride. Amen. Pride. Amen. If you want to understand the problem in your conflicts, it's normally the problem of sin and pride in one or both parties. Sin is the breaking of God's law of love with God and also with men. Pride is the covering up or the outright ignoring our role in a conflict. Of course, I've never dealt with that before. You know, I'm, I'm a defensive person by nature. You should know, it goes way back. I'm a street fighter, kind of all that stuff. So Elizabeth would tell me early on in our marriage, she'd say things like, Dean, you're being defensive. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> Very often the pride blinds us to how we aren't are contributing to the situation. So, we are terribly prone to seeing other people's junk, but not our own. So if sin's the problem, where does that then take us? Sin leads to what we call offenses. One person offends another with their sin. Now, in our time, there's tons of confusion about offense. So I want to clarify what I mean by that. According to John Calvin, there are two kinds of offenses. There are offenses given and offenses taken. Offenses given are when one person uh, actually sins against another by doing something that disobeys God's law and God's definition of sin in Scripture in particular, but even in the eyes of God. For example, if you gossip about someone, you know what gossip is, right? That's confessing other people's sin. Well, that's not only offensive to the person, that's offensive to God. However, there are offenses taken. And this is an important category. Calvin's really helping us here a ton here. And here's what that means. Offenses taken are those responses of people to things that offend them personally but aren't actually sin. 
If you want to see offenses taken, just watch the news pundits today who find fault with everything and everyone in all people and situations. Today's culture thinks the worst about people and is quick to judge. And all you have to do is see that on the internet, trolls. If you get on the internet and see the comments, it's crazy some of the things that people say. If you want to understand offenses taken, just look at Facebook or Twitter, and particularly at the false outrage that goes on today. How people get outraged about everything. To be sure, outrage is appropriate. And it's appropriate things like the Me Too movement. They're spot on. It's, it's something to be mad at, is sexual abuse that men do with women. However, in our time, people look for things to be mad at. They look for things to be angry at. Now, the sad part of these offenses, and particularly the offenses given, is this. They lead to conflict and alienation between people. Sometimes it gets so bad or feels so discouraging, we don't know what to think of the conflict. So how should we think about conflict according to the gospel? How should we think about conflict? Is it bad? Is it good to use simplistic categories? Well, here's where I want you to think about it. And I get this from Ken Sandy. I think he's spot on with this. Conflict is a providential opportunity for you to trust Jesus anew in a relationship. Conflict is a providential opportunity for you to grow and get bigger and probably the other person to grow and get bigger. It's an opportunity for you and that person to be revealed. That makes us nervous because we don't like to be revealed. But don't you understand that's exactly what conflict does. It reveals who we really are, what we really think, where we really are in relationships with people, even our expectations. As a husband, historically, I could be about as sensitive as a rock. And I've had to learn this stuff the hard way through years of my patient wife putting up with me and my ways. (laughs) For years, I thought conflict in marriage was bad. Every time she'd bring up something, I'd think, will you stop it, woman? You're creating problems. That's because I'm a peace faker, right? But what I began to realize is that God was sovereignly, lovingly exposing me so that I could be known so that I could know her. And that actually in the conflict, that was the place where we really started to know new intimacy. You know there's such a thing as a seven-year itch? I actually have been in counseling with so many people through the years as a pastor. I think there's a seven-year itch, a 14-year itch, a 21-year itch, a 28-year itch. And you know what the itch is? It's where two people are growing in different ways, relationally, emotionally, even spiritually, and it eventually comes to a head. And God is forcing the issue. What are you going to do in this relationship in your marriage? Are you going to grow? Are you going to trust me in new ways? When you enter a conflict, it is an opportunity for you to grow. And when you walk into a broken relationship, you are forced to rely on Jesus. On Jesus 
and what he can do with a relationship. Let me unpack that further. You ready? Too often when we're in relationships, even marriages, we want to control the outcome. The problem with conflict is if you really deal with it, you have to trust Jesus. You can't control the outcome. Stop trying to control the outcomes of your relationships. When a conflict happens, consider that an opportunity for Jesus to get into your stuff and love you and love the person you're in conflict with. And here's what's going to feel like. You ready? When you do that, it's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like you're giving up something that just can't be right. But don't you understand? That's the feel of faith. Faith is denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus yet again. And it's going to feel like death. But I promise you, and as much as it feels like death, on the other side of death is resurrection. Life in your relationships. I tell people now, and leaders, future leaders of this church, I'll tell you this. I don't think I have a real relationship with you until we get in a fight and we work through it. It's just life with me. I don't want to force the issue. But I'm just telling you, right up front. When Jesus brings us through that fight, then we know, okay, we can get through that. We can get through more. Making peace, you're going to find, in making peace, you're going to find an opportunity to trust Christ in new ways. Oh, man, I don't have a lot of time. So how then? <laughs> how do we handle this? How are we going to pursue the glory of God through peacemaking? I've set this up in many ways, guys. How do you get through it? This begs the question, what do you do? Well, in your outline, I've given you five steps that'll help you to work through a conflict. It's a biblical way to do it. There are other different angles, but I'm highlighting the big ones for us. If you want a real reference point, look to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 has the real kind of detailed outline from Jesus in one text, but really all of Scripture applies to this in a clear biblical process. Here's the first step to pursue reconciliation and thriving relationships in conflict, and here it is. Wise discernment. Wise discernment. When you get in a conflict, your tendency, if you're like anything like me, you either totally avoid it or want to jump in and fix it now. Stop. Stop. Don't get in a hurry. Slow down and ask this question with prayer. Is this worth fighting for? Is this worth fighting for? Is this a sin worth fighting for? Is it a Christian liberty thing where we're just disagreeing over something as Christians? Is it an offense taken on my part, like I'm actually taking offense when there's not a real offense here, it's just me being, being a jerk? Proverbs 19.11 says, the glory, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Learn to let things go. But then sometimes when you try to let it go, it won't let go. You can't, right? No matter how hard you try and say it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal, it is in your heart. What do you do next? Step number two, examine yourself. Matthew 7 says, judge not lest you be judged, or uh, for the measure in which you judge, you'll be measured by that same measure. This is the key uh, piece of, of, of being in any conflict, and that's self-awareness. Where you stop and think through the Lord, what am I bringing to the table in this conflict? What am I bringing to the Lord? 
Are you judging because of some form of self-righteousness? Are you judging because you're getting mad at something in someone that you actually don't like in yourself? That's pretty common. Get the log out of your eye and realize that most conflicts are two-sided. Examine yourself has another angle too, and that's your attitude. Examine your attitude. It means everything in a conflict. Are you thinking win-win in a conflict or are you thinking win-lose? Move from anger and pray for a desire to have win-win as you engage people. Here's the third step. This is the big one. Notice the first two are you're working on your own self. But now we move towards someone and we initiate a conversation and speak the truth in love. This is from Matthew 18. And here's what you do. Matthew 18 says that if your brother sins against you, you go. And talk to him, them about that and uh, make sure they hear you in the process. Furthermore, in Matthew 5, this very chapter, it says when you go to worship and you remember that someone is mad at you, that you've offended them, you know what it says to do? You go. Wait a minute. Did you just say if I was offended or if I'm the offending party, I go? That's right. That's exactly what Jesus says. The implication is this. If a group of people, particularly in a church, are initiating constantly with each other, it will take care of 90% of the conflicts, nip it in the bud like that. Proactively reach out to people. And here's what's going to happen. And this is where all these songs we've been singing about being a child of God comes in. You ready for this? You're going to go and you're going to be scared out of your wits. I mean, who likes engaging conflict? But what you got to do in a moment like that is you go, Jesus, I'm your child. You love me. Actually, I'm justified, which means in your sight, I'm in the clear. You see righteousness and and you've forgiven me. You see me as Christ. Therefore, I can go with freedom and enjoy this relationship while we work out our junk together. That's how you initiate with someone. Let's get the fourth step. Let's say you get stuck. Matthew 18 teaches us you can get righteous counsel. If things get stuck with someone, then you can get a mediator to come and help. And here's what a mediator's job is. Mediator's job is not to come in and actually fix the situation. And oh, how so many of us want to fix things, don't we? Hovering, fish, fixing. Now, here's the mediator's job. Mediator's job is to get two people together and be for, so for both of them being in reconciliation that they make sure they talk well with each other. Because typically that's the problem. When people can't reconcile, it's because they talk past each other. The mediator makes sure they talk to each other and understand each other. Bill, did you understand what John just said? John, do you understand what Bill just said? Are you understanding each other? You hear what he said? That's what a mediator does. Let me tell you, when other people bring you in, you may not gossip. You may not. Here's what gossip is. Gossip is like, can you believe what that guy did over there to me? Man, I tell you what, that gets in a church. That's like wildfire. Is bad. You may not triangle. Here's what triangling is. 
you know, I really don't like working out stuff with so-and-so. So would you go talk to them and tell them I'm mad at them? And you, would you work that out for us? You want to split a church? That's it right there. You want to split a family? That's it right there. When I have family members come to me and say, Dean, could you fix this in our family? I say, nope. I'll tell you, I'll give you counsel on what you might do, but you've got to go back and deal with it yourself. That's how you handle properly mediation. Let's say you work through all that, and it becomes clean that, clear that you are hearing each other and working through things, and you're actually talking with each other, real heart-to-heart talking. What do you do then? Well, you forgive. You forgive and you receive the forgiveness of God. You take it in yourself as you both give forgiveness or receive it, depending which party you are. Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The cross is the answer to all of our relational problems. You go to the cross and you deal with Jesus for real in your conflict, here's what will happen. You'll come to grips with, oh my gosh, my sin's worse than I thought. And theirs is too, but that's what we have in common. We're both sinners who need Christ. And then you realize, oh my goodness, Jesus bled and died for this very moment where I blew it or where they blew it. The cross is the key. You come in conflict to the Jesus who took on conflict with, uh, between God and men on himself there on that Roman gibbet 2,000 years ago who bled for you and me. That's where you do your business. This is the Jesus who, while hanging on the cross, has been nailed to the tree and has people at his feet, gambling away his clothes, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think we can learn a little bit from our Lord? There's so much more I could say today, but I want to close with this. When you go into real conflict resolution following Jesus, it's going to feel like death, but it's going to feel like life because you feel like you're a child of God. That's what the promise of this verse is, is that when you engage and follow Jesus, you'll feel like you belong That's what conflict does, is it rips apart that sense of belonging in us. But when we engage Jesus and follow him and really do peacemaking with one another, you know then that Jesus has said, you belong here. I grew up in a broken family. My dad was an alcoholic. He he wasn't home very much, played golf a lot with his friends, wasn't home. When he was home, sometimes he was pretty pissed. He was an angry dude, verbally abusive. Not physically, but verbally. This was my life as an, in a non-Christian home, you should know. It was hard to be in a relationship with my dad. Very hard. And I couldn't wait to go to college. And so when I went to college, I began to hurt my dad because with my absence, he started to reach out a little bit. And by the way, we had become Christians just a few years early, thanks be to God. I rejected him. I said, you screw me, I'll screw you, even as a Christian. Years later, my mom and dad, I actually started another church in Union County called Redeemer. 
And they moved to Union County and moved just down the road from us. And, and mom and dad became members of our church. And I started to uh, start spend time with them more because they were right there in my backyard, effectively. And so I'd, every Monday, my day off, I'd go over and I'd have lunch with mom and dad. And dad and I, through the years, we'd have conversations and we'd talk about life, talk about nothing. And sometimes we'd talk about really real things about what it was like to be him growing up in his verbally abusive, physically abusive father's home. What it was like um, to even be a dad who didn't know what he was doing most of the time. That's what my dad would have said. Five years ago, my father died, and I did his funeral. But two months before he died, he showed up at my house. He said, Dean, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So we went out back. He said, son, I want to ask your forgiveness for not being a very good father. And um, I'm very sorry. I wasn't there for you. And you know what I said? I said, dad, given the blessing of these years of spending time with you, I am pleased to forgive you. Two months later, he died. I did his funeral, and I told that story to a lot of his West Charlotte friends who were a tough lot, let me tell you. And I told them, you want to know what real manhood is? Is when a man stands up and says, please forgive me. There is a God who has come to you, and he says, I'm ready to forgive you. Take that in. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I know that as we come to a subject like this in conflict, there are real names, real people, real faces coming up in all of our hearts and minds right now. And this is a hard thing for many of us, Lord, because we walk around with wounds, and we also know that we've wounded. But I pray today that in your power and in your might, you would heal us through the cross and you would lead us to a life of forgiveness, of initiative, of being willing to die to our comforts, to press in and to follow you, Jesus, even into the conflict, to trust you with the relationship. I pray that today, even as we come to the supper, that we might know you. In Christ's name, amen.